I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examines, the beauty and wonders of the natural world, and just how much do we have in common with our animal and mammalian kin? They greet each other, they rub up against each other, they breathe air like we do. They have flippers like mittens, and their hands are in those mittens because all of the same bones that are in our hands are in a whale or a dolphin's flippers. And later, observation, conservation, and preservation. What are we missing that's right in our own backyards. We tend to have this idea in America that nature is some place that has a sign that says nature is here. So you want to go see nature, you can go to Yellowstone National Park. What about right around your house? Most people don't know all the birds that migrate through their region. From wolves and whales to flowers and falcons, naturalist Carl Safina shares his stories on how nature's beauty makes life worthwhile. That's coming up on Life Examined. Documentaries like Planet Earth, the work of David Attenborough, and the amazing photography popularized in magazines like National Geographic have helped in providing not only easier access, but a deeper appreciation for the wonders and beauty of the natural world. We've become familiar with species both common and rare, local and exotic, from the majesty of a wolf to the strength of an elephant. But what do we know about how animals feel and communicate— Are they born with innate skills? Is it nature or nurture in the animal kingdom? And considering how much greater the similarities are between our species than the differences, why don't we treat all living things better than we do? In his recent book, Beyond Words, What Animals Think and Feel, author Carl Safina explored the inner lives of animals and shared stories about the scientific, moral, and social dimensions of our relationship with nature. Carl Safina is a marine ecologist, writer, and founding president of the Safina Center at Stony Brook University in New York. His latest book is Becoming Wild, How Animal Cultures Raise Families, Create Beauty, and Achieve Peace. Well, Carl Safina, welcome to the full hour of Life Examined. It's great to have you. Yeah, it's great to be with you. I love your radio station. It's one of the best in the country. Oh, appreciate you saying that. Well, um, one of the interesting things you've looked at is is how animals um, are kind of incredible learners and how knowledge is passed down through generations of animals. And I think that's interesting. I mean, just personally, I have this I have this Chesapeake Bay Retriever who seems hardwired to retrieve as if it's something that was not taught. It, you know, I think we have this idea that animals are all nature and maybe not so much nurture. And so I'm curious to hear more about um, that idea of how knowledge is gained and brought into a group of animals and, and when you kind of begin to notice that and start studying it. Well, all of nature has a lot of um, instinct and learning. So, you know, the, the, the typical way of talking about that is nature or nurture, meaning is it just instinct or has it been learned? That's what that phrase means. And almost always it's a lot of both things. So, um, I mean, you mentioned something about your retriever. Obviously they have been bred to have those kinds of instinctive tendencies. They like to chase things. They like to bring things back. That is something that has been bred into them. But for a lot of things, it's a matter of what the creature's let's call it, I mean, we'll call it wiring. I don't really like these analogies to technology, but, you know, their nervous system has certain capacities and we could call that instinct. And a really good example to me 
is that humans have a language instinct. All humans are born with the capacity to learn a human type language. We can understand syntax, we can understand grammar, but whether we learn French or Vietnamese or whatever is totally a matter of nurture. And there's a lot of that in, in a lot of animals. Um, you, you're talking about dogs. We could talk about the ancestors of dogs, which are wolves. They do different things in different places. And when, when one species does different things in different places, in other words, uses their endowed capacity to learn different skills, that's what's called culture. Wolves are animals that by nature, they live in groups, um, which are family groups, and they hunt together cooperatively. But what they hunt and how they hunt can differ a lot from region to region, and it can even differ a lot from family to family in the same place. For instance, in Yellowstone, uh, in the Yellowstone National Park, there's really only one wolf family there, which we, we often call a pack, that is very skilled at hunting bison. And for most wolves, bison are just too big and too tough. So how, how are they skilled like that? They weren't born that way. They learned it. They learned it from adults who learned how to do it and taught their young ones how to do it. And... Um, there's a huge array of that. I mean, I'm giving you some of the examples that are not very subtle, really, but there's a huge array of that. For instance, many songbirds, I think, I think I would say all songbirds, they're born with the ability to learn the song of their species, but they have to hear it to start to learn it. And mm. oddly enough, that is not true of the vocalizations of birds in many other groups, many birds in many other groups, they seem to vocalize more or less instinctively. At least it seems that way. You use a, a really interesting example in the book, um, which is that of, of a mallard duckling who was adopted by loons. What, what happened there? Yeah, that's, a, you know, that's a great example. So Somebody noticed that a loon, which normally carries their young on their back, was carrying a mallard duckling instead of a loon chick. What happened to the duckling's parents? Nobody knows. What, what happened to maybe, the, maybe there were baby loons? Nobody knows. Any, anyway, that's what they saw. Now, the thing is, ducklings never ride on their parents' back. This one was riding on the back of the adult. The adult taught it, this is how we travel, get on my back. I don't know how it said that, but somehow this was effectively communicated. And mallard ducklings eat vegetation. They never dive and they never catch fish. They just, they just dip their butts up and put their heads down and they never catch fish. And yet this duckling was diving and swimming around underwater and when the loon caught a fish, it would feed the duckling a fish and the duckling would eat it. So the, the duckling was learning loon culture. Um, it would be wonderfully fascinating to know what happened next, but that's where the observed part of that story ends. So mm -hmm. it, it kind of, I mean, it's a, it's a fascinating thing that I think helps us appreciate how much learning 
is often involved and how much we don't really see because we would just say, well, loon chicks, they just have an instinct to ride on their mother's back and mallard ducklings, they don't have a riding instinct. They have a swimming alongside instinct. Well, apparently that's not entirely true. Um, but on the other hand, the story just raises a gigantic question mark about how far that kind of cross-species enculturation could go. Uh, and I think it probably could go pretty far, but those situations are a little bizarre. They're certainly few and far between. You know, maybe the most, maybe the most extreme example in space and time is the the way that over thousands of years wolves became acculturated into being dogs. Mm. You know, dog, dogs are physically different from their wolf ancestors, but they're also behaviorally different from their wolf ancestors. And now a, a dog's culture by instinct and by learning is to be oriented toward people for their entire life. Mm -hmm. um, I, I often say that I think that the main difference between wolves and dogs in their whole life pattern is that when a wolf gets to be an adolescent, they, they leave their family and they try to find their own, their own foothold in life, their own stake in the world, which is what humans do. Mm. Um, but Dogs never do that. They're they're like puppy. They're like wolf puppies in Arrested Development. They're always they're always happy to see their humans as their leader. They never get to a point where they want to leave and, and establish their own life. Yeah. So in a way, you know, like I say, across space and time, that's probably the most extreme story of enculturation across species that I know of anyway. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, quite likely it's the most extreme one that exists. It makes me think playfully of, of the New Yorker cartoon where there's these wolves watching cavemen eating and there's all this meat there and they say, should we go join them? And then <laughs> it flashes forward like 500 years and it's like a pug dressed as a ballerina being thrown around by kids. Yes, and right. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I, th I, I remember that cartoon and I, I think I think there was a caption under it that said something like, what could possibly go wrong? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> something, something along those lines. <laughs> I, you know, I'm I, very interestingly, I'm, I'm reading a book that um, I found in my own attic. My wife had it about a couple who in the 1950s. They were, they were very early wildlife photographers and they went to spend a couple of years in, in Arctic Alaska, including wintering over um, with what we would consider nowadays to be essentially no effective gear of any kind. But um, one of the things they did was to take a couple of, very young wolf pups and just raised them. Mm. And um, as far in the story as I am now, the, the wolves are less than a year old, but they're like seven months old or something like that. They are, you know, we, we've been told the story that wolves became dogs over, over 20,000 years right. or so. Uh, these, these wolves 
follow the people around. They, they go out for walks. If, if the wolves are lost and out of sight somewhere, they call, the wolves appear and come running toward them. They all go back home. Uh, they, they do a big greeting in the morning where everybody's rubbing, tails are waving. It, it's really as if wolves didn't need much at all. Huh. And, and in fact, the, the, the normal social life of wolves is more like the way modern humans live than any other animals because we live in you know what's called nuclear families right there's the breeding pair mom and dad and there are the young ones until adolescence and that's exactly what a wolf pack is it's a breeding pair and they're young of several ages until adolescence when the young leave so they're completely primed to live in this kind of a situation and that's why we have that's why we have domesticated wolves lying around our living room floor and in our kitchen mm. instead of our closest relative this is really fascinating because i think that it, it opens up this really larger question of um, the adaptability of these animals whether it was the example of the mallard duckling or dogs i mean I, I still think there's this cultural notion that we share, which is that an animal is an animal and an animal does this and they do that. And that it's a fairly simplistic view of the greater, you know, animal kingdom. So, I mean, would you say that we just haven't actually applied this level of nuance or open-minded thinking towards these remarkable creatures? Yeah, I think that's definitely an understatement. Since the beginning of studying the behavior of free living animals, almost all of the pioneers are still working. Um, I'm talking about Jane Goodall, George Schaller, Ian Douglas Hamilton, these people. Before them, meaning not that long ago, most people studied wild animals by shooting them and then doing things like pulling out their teeth to see the age structure of the population or something like that. Right, right. The, the behavior was not uh, not part of science. It, it, it wasn't a thing people had learned to do in a scientific way. And uh, then when people started to do it, like Jane Goodall got a tremendous amount of flack from her mentors about, um, no, you cannot write that they have different personalities. Animals do not have different personalities. Well, except that they do have different personalities and especially uh, especially something like chimpanzees and, and many other animals do. Um, I think for people who have pets, it's not a stretch to understand that obviously different individuals have different personalities, but we tend not to think that about free living animals at all. And um, we, we certainly tend not to think that they learn different cultures in different populations. So, you, you made a comment about, you know, it opened a question for you, but I think, I think the big question really that it opens up is who are we here with on this planet? We, we tend to think of other living things as objects more than as beings. And, we, and that closes us off to the questions that we might ask of beings, like, who are you? And, and this is something that where our language reflects our thinking and our thinking is limited by our language. Uh, so for instance, there's a Native American 
writer who is who's become very well known, Robin Wall Kimmerer. Yeah. She talks about how in many native languages there's a different pronoun for something that is or has been alive compared to something that was never alive or or that uh, might be human human crafted. So we we call a dog it, we call an elephant it, we call a uh, we call a rock it, we call a shoe it. And the the language enforces our blindness and our blindness is reflected in our language. If if we had these different pronouns, we we would they would make us think differently as we're speaking. I actually never thought about that until this moment. How you know, oftentimes when we say to the dog, you know, bring it over here, or um, what's it doing? That's that. That actually, I find to be kind of a profound point that our language itself is so primitive in how we treat and think of animals. That's actually kind of shocking, isn't it? It is shocking, you know. And I've I've been trying to write <clears throat> and speak differently, um, and not say it and find find different ways of constructing sentences especially on the page it, often it starts out sounding and feeling awkward yeah uh, but in speech i catch myself doing the usual pattern all the time today i was taking our three dogs for a walk on the beach and i was telling somebody a story about a puppy that wandered into our yard and i and i said oh it, it was such a cute puppy and and i i was i took the puppy here one morning and um, that guy, that older guy with the German Shepherd, he fell in love with it. And I kept realizing I kept referring to the puppy as it. Uh -huh. uh, you know, you, you could say like she fell in love with it when, you know, referring to a handbag or a pair of shoes or something. Like <laughs> yeah, that. yeah, yeah. No, that's, I, I, I take the point. Um, but we it, don't, and we don't talk about people that, like the thing is we don't call a human being it. We, we say they, and we some people say, well, you don't, you don't actually use they, they is, they is not singular, but actually we do, you know, mm -hmm. we could say like, I, I was walking down, I was walking down the street after dark and there was somebody following me and they, they made me feel very creepy. Yeah. Well, you don't realize you just said they, you didn't say it made me feel creepy. You said they referring to a single human being, but mm -hmm. we don't speak that way about other beings. And yeah. that is why we think of them as objects. Where do you think in Western thought this division began, this, this kind of cold materialism where, well, where nothing around us besides us is given this kind of sentient status? That is the subject of the book that I am just finishing. Hmm. And uh, there is actually a very good answer to that question. I probably shouldn't give too much away. Okay. But, well, maybe a little um, bit for us. Let, okay. Let me, I'll, I'm going to throw the question back at you and then I'll answer. But where do you think that came from? I mean, I don't know. I, this could go back to to biblical times that, that man shall have dominion over earth. This could be uh, early philosophical ideas. Um, but it seems to be very Western. You know, when it's, when, it's very Western. Mm -hmm. the, the West is an outlier in this regard. Um, I mean, you could, you could group regions of thinking and belief into, uh, let's say, four, which, which I do. And now, of course, any generalization like that 
there's plenty of exceptions and differences, but very, very generally, you can, you can group the Dharmic religions of South Asia, you can group some of the philosophies of East Asia that are quasi-religious, like Confucianism, not right. really religious. You can basically group all of the land-based hunter-gatherer people because not because their cultures weren't very different, but because their beliefs about the human place in the world were actually very similar and their respect for other creatures and their senses of spirituality. There are a lot of similarities among indigenous people everywhere. And, and all of them respect the world, respect living things, believe that spirits kind of free flow and they believe that in different ways many many believe in things like reincarnation that the same spirit goes through different lifetimes in different kinds of creatures and many believe that the human role in the world and in the cosmos is not just to maintain respect but to maintain the balances that exist, not to mm. let things get out of balance. The West is completely different in these regards. And the, the root of it is basically Plato. Huh. And Plato's thinking got wrapped explicitly into the, uh, the Old Testament and then the uh, early Christian theologies. The, the, some of the early Christian theologians were reading Plato and right. write about reading Plato. And what, what, so what did Plato say? He said that the world is a terrible place and that perfection lies someplace away from here, outside of space and time. Can you go a little further than that? I mean, I'm, I, I, I've studied a bit of it, and I think of the kind of ideals, the Platonism, the forms, the kind of um, the way in which, right, we're, we're looking for perfection elsewhere. But how would that translate into one's relationship, say, to the animal world? Well, because he set up a dualistic sense of existence, not an integrated sense of existence. That mm. was That was the basic premise for all of humanity is that we're all in this world we're all related yeah, i mean native americans speak of all living things as all my relations right in 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 the west you know we're 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 still struggling with the fact that darwin helped to point out that we're all related dna certainly points that all out um, a lot of people cannot stand that idea if they were raised with this western sense of values that everything is a duality it's it's humans it's man against nature it's me against you it's us against them it's it's the the putrefying material existence against the perfections that lie away from here mm -hmm. Yeah, and oftentimes in religion, the dualism would be that that God is out there and I am down here. I'm not even intertwined with that's any. That's really form only. Of it. That's really true. It's real. I'm sorry to interrupt you. I didn't mean to do that. I, I just I find this topic exciting. 
but it's really only true in the Abrahamic traditions. Mm. It's, it's really not true in almost, almost anywhere in the world that God is up there and we are down here. Mm-hmm. It, it, almost everybody believes that there are spirits in everything and that we're, we're all part of the same existence sharing, you know, the same mystery. Mm. There's no, there's no dualism in essentially any other religious belief yeah. or, or if there is a dualism, there is almost never with, with the exception of maybe one or two forms of Hinduism, as far as I know, almost never the idea that we should try to get away from this world and achieve some perfection elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Why? Well, I'm excited to see what what you have to say in this new book. And I just caught myself thinking how interesting that we started talking about my Chesapeake Bay Retriever, and now we're talking about the nature of existence together. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, I appreciate right. it. Yeah, well, it, that's because everything is really one thing. You know, you if, if oddly enough, if you have a really firm grip on reality, um, you get to everywhere from any point. And that's what... <laughs> That is the nature of reality, is that it, there is one reality. And many, many of these other belief systems that, you know, sort of alluding to, the, the big question for people was to try to understand the, um, the diversity within the unity of things. Mm. Whereas Plato kept driving a wedge that, the Abrahamic traditions just drove deeper. If you're just joining us, my guest is Carl Safina, marine ecologist, professor, and author. We'll be back with part two of our conversation after this short break. I'm Jonathan Bastian, and you're listening to Life Examined on KCRW. Stay close. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard naturalist Carl Safina share his views on man's relationship to the animal kingdom and how the duality of Western thought of man versus nature wasn't always the case. In many cultures and throughout history, there was a far deeper respect for living things. We rejoin the conversation where I ask Safina about a subject, as a marine ecologist, he has studied deeply. I, I want to kind of now spend a little bit of time, not just on land, but but into the ocean, because you've studied those incredible creatures as well, whales, dolphins. Um, how do they say even more about this idea of the kind of wondrous nature of, of animals and marine life in terms of learning, culture, communication? Maybe you can kind of take us there for a little bit. Yeah, okay. I think one thing that is really instructive, I I think, if you look at whales, is that whales' ancestors were were land animals that had four limbs Hmm. and then eventually became, you know, sort of marsh dwellers. They probably had big feet that got webbed like otters, and then they probably had more something more like flippers like seals and then eventually you know the immersion became really total where they stopped coming ashore to have young ones and really became marine creatures right and that must have taken a very long time we Mm -hmm. think and we say 
and we can put years on it. And those years are in the tens of millions. And that seems like a really long time. Yeah. But consider how recently that is in the history of life. It's, you know, like the most recent 5% of time. And by the time they get to be whales, all of their organs are the same as all of our organs. The main difference is that they're shaped for swimming. Mm. Everything internal is the same as every other mammal. A lot of their behaviors are completely mammalian. They greet each other. They rub up against each other. When you see them doing this, it, it makes a big impression about how mammalian they really are. They, they breathe air like we do. They just have nostrils that are shaped differently and placed differently. They have milk for their babies uh, in their flippers, which, oh my God, they have flippers like fish. They lost their hands. Well, actually they have flippers like mittens and their hands are in those mittens because all of the same bones that are in our hands are in a whale or a dolphin's flippers, the mm. exact same bones. They just look at an x-ray or a drawing. It's a hand covered by skin it's a mitten. That's all it is. So, you know, we think, oh my God, these creatures, they're so different from us, but actually they're so similar to us. And the difference that happened in the, in the, you know, family of life happened very, very recently in relative actual time, not in human time. In human time, it was a long time ago because we are a little spark, but you know, the fire has been burning a long time and the torch has been lit a long time. And um, all of these animals are in, in the overall history of things. All of these animals that we that we are talking about when we say animals and we think of the big things like mammals and birds and fish and things like that. All of that is very, very recent. And the the differences between us are much less than the similarities among us. Hmm. Yeah, I, I had no idea about so much of that. And, and, and I'm curious, just, just in terms of learning about you, what, what made you fascinated in studying, say, some of these big whales or some of these other animals? I mean, what, what was drawing you to some of this stuff? Well, in, in a way, it, it's the same, it's sort of the same question as asking me, you know, why are you interested in the fact that we're alive? Mm. Or why are you interested in being alive? I just, I, I like living things. They're, living things are really, really interesting. The, the diversity is something beyond the grasp of the human mind. Um, the story of life is really beyond the grasp of the human mind. There are, there are thousands of people trying to understand different parts of it. And and put it together that you can't run out of things to ask things you will never be able to fully understand despite how hard you try and and science has helped us to understand an unbelievable amount of stuff compared to where our understanding was uh 100 years ago or 200 years ago so the the story is just incredibly fascinating um and it's all extremely beautiful Right now, I'm sitting out in my backyard, and I'm just really enjoying talking to you, but I also can hear a few birds. I hear a lot of insects that are still 
still chanting away at this time of the year. There's a chipmunk just ran past me. I mean, you know, it's it, the amount of the amount of stimulation is unmatched by any other realm. So I've always thought animals are simply really cool. What they do is pretty cool. It's very interesting. You start learning how, oh my God, we, we're really all related. It looks that way. Yeah. Well, um, what about this? What about that? What about, mm -hmm. what about whales? But they look like fish. What's going on with that? Um, right. There's no end to not only how interesting it is, but how fantastic it is to be lucky enough to get out among them in, in these powerful and beautiful, overwhelmingly beautiful realms with these unimaginably fascinating creatures. Mm -hmm. Take your breath away. Well, yeah, it's interesting. Part of the title of your of your book in uh, 2020 was this idea of how animals create beauty and achieve peace. And I've never actually thought about the idea of animals creating beauty. I, I wonder if you could add a little bit more to that. I can add a little bit more to that. It, it takes a while um, to unravel the full thought. But, you know, basically, if you think about birds, which are a very, very good example of the beginning of unraveling this thinking, um, a lot of songbirds have males and females that look very, very different. And the females are usually camouflaged and the males are usually bright. Why are the males bright? The males are bright, we would say, to attract mates. And the brighter males would have a better shot. If they're, you know, if they're competing at all, they have a better shot at getting a mate than a male that doesn't really look so bright, might not really be so healthy or doing so well. So the brightness may be a reflection of their physical state, their ability to exist in the world and do well, and therefore to provide for young ones. But what are the females looking at? They're looking at something that is aesthetic. The aesthetic is the colors and the patterns. And if you start to look at patterns among birds, you see these incredible, incredible colors, um, incredible iridescences, and you start to see these unbelievable plumes like, like egrets have or like some hummingbirds have or scissor-tailed flycatchers or these things. None of those things have any practical value. Mm. They are simply driven by the aesthetic preferences of females. So if you say that a hummingbird is beautiful, or um, I'm here in the East, we, I just heard a cardinal in the backyard. Cardinals are these red birds with a crest. If you say, oh, the male cardinal is so beautiful. Well, female cardinals created that beauty. They created it by their, basically their aesthetic demands of what a good mate, an attractive male is supposed to look like. There, there are other aspects that take that story a lot deeper. And in the book, I explain how um, I believe that the evidence, show, I mean, I lay out a bunch of evidence showing that I think that not only does it make males and females look different in songbirds, but that it creates most of the living 
uh, beauty that we see around us among animals that have colors and patterns that are not, not practical, just aesthetic, and that that has driven the evolution of species, actually, hmm. that, that preferences along these lines can get so particular that they can drive different populations off in different directions and create new species. Hmm. I also wonder, I mean, just to go even further into abstract territory, if, if you know, animals which, which predate us have also as a result then informed our sense of beauty or our sense of a love of pattern or color or any of that, right? I mean, you think about what would have been early gifts, maybe in, in indigenous tribes, it could have been beautiful pelts or, or things of that nature. Do, do you think that's true too? Yeah, but I also think that it gets us into some sort of mystical territory, which um, almost gives me goosebumps when I think about it, which, mm. which is that there are some things that are specifically designed aesthetically for non-human tastes and attraction. And, mm. and the best example of that is flower in the living world the best example of that is flowers flowers are there to attract pollinators that's the only reason a flower exists and then after pollination the flower um, forms and, and grows into a seed or a fruit or a nut but the only reason that there's a flower is to attract pollinators so there's an aesthetic relationship between the pollinator and the flower and the scent of the flower. There is absolutely no practical reason why a flower should look better to us than the roots of a bush because flowers do not have to do with us mm. and their smell does not have to do with us, but we find it really beautiful. Why in the world is that the case? And the, you know, the other thing to keep in mind is that beauty is not a property of the thing it's a perception that is created in a nervous system it's your mind tells you it's beautiful the, the flower is just the shape it is the it reflects the light wavelengths that it does your mind tells you this thing is beautiful why does our mind have the universal capacity to perceive the shape and reflective properties of a flower as beautiful and even beyond something like a flower that is in fact evolved to at least attract some living thing why do we think the stars are beautiful why do we think that a moonrise is beautiful why does the actual world overwhelm us with beauty why are most people's favorite colors either green or blue those are the main colors of the world itself. Hmm. Nothing, not exotic things. The, the main things about the world we find overwhelmingly beautiful. They are our favorite things. Why is that? I think the reason is that it makes us love being alive. It makes us love being in the world. If all you ever experienced was the work it takes to stay alive, what would be the point of staying alive if you didn't have 
these senses of beauty and well-being and joy. So I think that beauty is what makes life worth the time and trouble it takes. And I think that that is an astonishing place that this line of logic gets me to. I'm sitting with that answer and I, and I, and I respect it. And, you know, and I think so if, you know, if that's true, if beauty is essentially what will save the world, if beauty is, is what makes life worthwhile, then the question for us becomes a pretty hefty one, which is, okay, well, who will save beauty? Do you still find kind of hope in conservation movements or are there things that, you know, you would tell our listeners that are, that are crucial that we get behind in order to preserve this, this beautiful world that you've been telling us about for the last bit? Yes, of course. Well, um, first of all, I do find hope that may not sound like, yes, of course, but I, I do. And I always will, because when I was quite young, when I was in high school, there were things that everyone thought were doomed because the solutions were not visible. Um, and just for a few examples that have to do with birds and had to do with birds that were supposed to live where I lived, peregrine falcons and ospreys and bald eagles were uh, essentially erased from almost all of the United States south of Canada, hanging on by a thread in a few places because of DDT and some other hard pesticides that was making their eggs break. And what people were writing about was that there was no solution. They were going to go extinct. But a few people, and I mean six, some of whom I got to know personally later, they didn't take that for an answer. And they worked through the courts to get those pesticides banned. A few other people worked on breeding some of those birds in captivity and reintroducing them after the pesticides were banned. I worked a little bit on that with peregrine falcons and they are now quite abundant. They're, they're everywhere. So, um, I mean, we have ospreys, these big fish catching hawks. We probably have six or eight nests within a mile and a half of my house. Whereas when I was a teenager, there were just zero, none. Uh, you had to go a few hundred miles to find a nesting pair that was still hanging on. So I will always have hope because when it was hopeless earlier in my life, these things turned around. Wherever there is any remaining life, there definitely is hope. What should people get behind? Well, what living things need is a place to live. Big habitat initiatives connecting habitat fragments, which is a big part of what's called restoration ecology now. Um, wildlife corridors, uh, they, could be, they could be bridges and overpasses over freeways. They, they could be bigger, more profound things. Like I'm, I'm working with uh, a group called Saving Nature uh, that's run by Stuart Pym at Duke University they're buying land that is so degraded that it is considered worthless. He was telling me about land in South America that they're buying that it's so degraded that if you put cows on this land, they lose weight. Nobody wants it. So it's cheap, but it's between two forest patches. So 
buy that land, plant some of the native vegetation and some, some tree saplings, and the forest starts to grow back. And these, these are, you know, there are several groups doing this around different parts of the world and in the U.S. And, and these are successes that are happening right now. Yeah. Uh, makes me think of, of, you know, uh, reclaiming old mines that, you know, from hilltop removal in the Southeast. And I think actually here in Southern California, the importance of building wildlife corridors for these, I don't know how they still exist. These mountain lions just outside of Los Angeles. Right. And right. Um, right. That's a, that's a great example right there. Yes. Right. Yeah. But I, but I, just as you said, I think it's this idea of how do we how do we create the land for which these creatures and plants to flourish? And I, it sounds to you that 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 should be a thing that we all think about in terms of how we, you know, how we go about our lives or if we choose to give back. Um, yeah. Is that is that right? Yeah. Yes, exactly. You know, I mean, people people can make make some donations where they can, uh, or pitch in as volunteers where they can, or devote careers to it if they choose to, or certainly vote for politicians who care about nature and the environment and sustainable living. Um, and also the idea of coexistence, of um, welcoming certain animals in and, in and around our homes and property, hmm. uh, even if there's something a little bit inconvenient about having them there versus, uh, you know, just trapping and poisoning everything just because it's there. Yeah. Yeah, I spent a lot of the summer in Colorado and the bears would come down and they and they would eat, you know, whatever or cruise around. And I always just thought, let's like, well, we put a town in the middle of the mountains where bears live. What what do we expect? You know, yeah. that the, bear, well, the bears won't come into town. You know, Right, right. They I mean, they can't exist without room to live. So they they can't actually just go into the mountains because there are bears in the mountains. So, you, you know, you can't have an unlimited number of things crowding in everywhere. So what yeah. happens is their, their numbers decline and there are across the board declines in almost everything. And that's why living spaces are really the crucial thing right now. Mm. Uh, well, I'll let you go after this, but, but this is just a, something I'm really curious about. You know, I'm part of a, I don't know, a millennial generation, which is all about experiences. Everybody wants to go out and have a million experiences and capture them on their phones and so on and so forth. And I just think about what the future is going to look like and how damaging travel is, you know, and flying everywhere and all of the CO2 emissions to go see the elephant or to go see the tiger. And I've, I've done this. My whole life, I've been to all these far-flung places, but I just wonder if we're going to have to rethink the way we move through the world, the habitats we think we can visit, the experiences we think we need to have. Do you think? Do you think that's true? I yes, I think that is true. Um, but the other thing I think is true, which is part of that, is where we think experience lies and where we think nature is. We we tend to have this idea in America because of how we live as Americans, that nature is some place that has a sign that says nature is here. Yeah. So you want to go see nature, you can go to Yellowstone National Park. Well, um, what about right around your house? What's, what's there? You know, most people don't know all the birds that migrate through their region for instance, like I, I live on Long Island, New York. It's, a, uh, I live about 50 miles east of Manhattan. 
there are a lot of birders who go to Manhattan to go birding because there are some really good birding spots in Manhattan. On Long Island itself, there are probably 200 species of birds that either nest or pass through here during the course of a year. Um, some of my great wildlife experiences have to do with just being right, right here around the shores, in the bays, off, offshore. I've always had a boat, so I have a little bit of mobility that way. But uh, I just, <laughs> just last month, we were scheduled to go to Brazil, a, a trip that had been postponed because of COVID for two years. When we were, when it was imminent that we had to leave to go to Brazil, I had a hard time tearing myself away from home because I was having such a fantastic time watching the humpback whales that had moved close to shore right off Long Island. Mm. That I didn't, I needed a little more of that. I wasn't quite done with it, and I and I was very reluctant to leave. Uh, COVID destroyed two years worth of travel entirely. And what did I get by sitting at home? I got an entire book about uh, an owl in my backyard. Uh, that's the book that I, I told you I'm finishing that talks about how, how the West views nature. But that book came out of sitting mostly in my backyard. And all my other books, you know, I travel to like various continents and I go to 10 different countries. Uh, and being stuck at home, let me see what was here better mm -hmm. than I had before. So I think there's a lot of that involved in, in this equation is that there's, there's an awful lot close to home. It doesn't have to have a sign on it. There, there, a woman said to me once at a book signing, she said, oh, you know, I just want you to know we love nature so much. And, and this year we're going to take our children to Botswana. And we, because we want them to love nature. And I, I looked up from the book I was signing and I said, do you have a bird feeder? And because uh, are they going to love nature if they go to Botswana and see elephants? Or are they going to think, well, that was some distant place that has nothing to do with my life. And yeah, the elephants were really great, but I don't know. It didn't, didn't really seem like it had much to do with me. I, th I think there are many, many opportunities to integrate the rest of the living world with how we live, even in the suburbs, uh, sometimes even in the city. Hmm. I've been speaking with Carl Safina, a marine ecologist, writer, founding president of the Safina Center at Stony Brook University, and is the author, most recently, of Beyond Words, What Animals Think and Feel. Um, thank you so much, Carl, for this, this kind of expansive conversation. These are my favorite ones, so I appreciate the time. Well, my favorite ones as well, and you did a really wonderful job of asking me some thoughtful, thought-provoking questions that could take us places. Not, mm -hmm. not everybody has that skill, so I really appreciated speaking with you. It was a lot of fun for me. All right, that's all the time we have for this week. Once again, my guest was marine ecologist and author Carl Safina. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. And we'd love to hear from you. When it comes to the animal kingdom, is it nature versus nurture? And in your opinion, where does this division between animals and humans come from? And what explains our treatment towards them? 
please write us on our Facebook page. You can find a link at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined, where you can also find our archive of shows, or you can search in Facebook for KCRW Life Examined. I'm your host, Jonathan Bastian, and once again, I appreciate you tuning in to this show on KCRW. Have a wonderful week, and we'll see you soon. Take care.